you have a Bible with you, Joshua chapter 8. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 8, and we'll just get, I don't know why I brought my drink up here. It's not like I'm going to sit there and drink it. It's just a habit that goes with me everywhere. <clears throat> Joshua chapter 8, I'm always thrilled for another opportunity to teach and preach God's word. And it's a blessing. If you had told me seven years ago, eight years ago, that I would get to do this ever, I would have called you a liar. Now tonight, uh, on the sovereignty of God, thanks to the mighty sovereignty of God, we are led to Joshua chapter 8. And this is a chapter in which the Lord gave me two choices. I could either try to figure out how to practically apply military strategy to your life which sounds an awful lot like Pastor Jake territory. <laughs> or the entire message could be a nerd spasm. I would like to tell you I found a middle ground. I did not. The entire message is a nerd spasm. That's the one I picked. So if you want intense practical application on military strategy to your life, then hope and pray that Pastor Jake will revisit this chapter with you at some point in the future. For tonight, I want to give you something that uh, you're going to have to listen intentionally. And please do, because although what we may dive into tonight is going to be above the level of what most people are thinking about on a daily basis, tomorrow when you think about whether or not to go to Starbucks on your way to work, you are not going to be thinking about things like this. Although, as we're going to discover, perhaps you would actually witness something on your drive or experience something on your drive that would quickly lead you to thinking some of the thoughts that we're going to discuss tonight. And to kind of segue into what I'm getting to here, when I first started uh, studying this stuff, I found a lot of people talking about the idea of whether or not Christianity was true. And uh, I haven't really, I don't think, got a chance to tell my entire story, and I don't have time tonight. But there was a time back in 2014 where I just had sort of this moment of like, I felt the Lord like calling me to preach and um, teach in some way. I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, because I, I didn't think that I was anything like the hellfire and brimstone preachers that I grew up listening to, so I wasn't really sure what that was going to be like. But one thing I did think is this, you know, if I'm going to devote the rest of my life to teaching others and, and preaching to others about Jesus, I want to have just a little bit more confidence and certainty that all of this stuff is true. And so that led me down a multi-year just, you know, sort of study and unpacking of these things and really led me down the idea of becoming a Bible nerd, of, of loving theology and all of that. Um, the thing is that there's been a shift in recent years, and maybe you've had some of these thoughts. If you haven't had some of these thoughts, your kids have. If your kids have, their friends have, and uh, God forbid there may come a time in your life where you do have some of these thoughts, but the, the cultural sort of idea changed. I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's not very much thought given, or at least there doesn't seem to be, about what's true anymore. Is that right? Have you experienced that? It's all about kind of what feels good, what feels right. And so the question in the cultural mindset has no longer become, is Christianity true? I mean, that will always be there a little bit. But the bigger question, the question that's being asked more prominently now is, is Christianity good? Is God good? Is the Bible good? And in many cases where the answer to that, that uh, a person has come to conclude, the answer that they've given themselves is no, but they still want to hang on to this idea of community, this idea of Jesus, what they start to do is completely water down the gospel and water down the message of Jesus and say, okay, well, we want all the good parts of Jesus, but those parts where he said this, that, or the other thing, 
we're not so interested in. And so what I want to do is take this chapter, and we're going to talk about what's actually going on in the chapter, but um, it's going to lead to, I think, some pretty uncomfortable, um, you know, things that we might hear. And I want to take the time to actually step back a little bit and look at really the, the bigger story that God is telling what all is involved with that. And if you'll just give me uh, your grace and your uh, attention for a few minutes tonight, we'll try to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. So Joshua chapter 8, I want to read a little bit of it here to you. And uh, we'll start in verse number 1. <clears throat> and the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst to Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof, and the cattle thereof, shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. Let's move on to verse number 24. Go down there with me. And it came to pass... When Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness wherein they chased them, and when they were all fallen on the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned unto Ai and smote it with the edge of the sword. And so it was that all that fell on that day, both of men and women, were 12,000, even all the men of Ai. For Joshua drew not his hand back, Wherewith he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city Israel took for a prey unto themselves, according unto the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. And Joshua burnt Ai and made it and heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And here's where it gets exciting. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until eventide, and as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city and raise thereon a great heap of stones that remaineth unto this day. Let's pray very quickly. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us. I pray, Lord, as we look at what could be seen as a, a difficult passage of scripture for some to accept, may we um, go into this with the full acceptance of your truth and look and see what there is to, to mine out of these scriptures that we can take and apply in our daily lives and interac uh, interactions with others. We love you. I pray, Lord, tonight that you would hide me behind the cross, have me to say what the Bible says, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's happening here in Joshua chapter 8. I mean, can we just be honest, some real talk for a minute? This is pretty crazy stuff. We're talking about God, not only his blessing, but his commandment for his people to go take this city and destroy it and destroy all the inhabitants therein. It says men and women. It doesn't say children, but... You, do you think any children were living in the city of Ai? Yeah. Yeah, there were children there. Men, women, children. Died as a result of this conquest. That's the word that's often used in the um, scholarly literature. These are the conquests of Joshua, the conquests of Israel. And so what's happening here, if you remember from chapter 8, basically where Achan had taken 
of those things that were devoted to destruction. And we'll talk about that language again in just a moment. He had taken of those things from Jericho. And um, when they went to attack Ai, if you'll remember, they sent just a couple thousand people. They said, uh, that city's not too big. It's, you know, you know what? We got this. Look at how good a job we did at Jericho. Lord, uh, you know, Jesus, God, rather, you can take a break. You can just sort of chill out for a few minutes. We'll just go handle this one on our own. We don't really need you for this one. And uh, they went to attack the city of Ai and got run out of town badly. They fleed. And uh, when they got back, they're like, okay, so what's up with that? Like, we, we were on a roll here, Lord. Like, we were doing pretty good. Why did that happen? And that's when they go through and they root out the sin in the camp of Achan. And they get now a second chance. They get a second try at this. And if you look back in the, in the, the first few verses of chapter 8, what you're going to find is that the Lord allowed them to go to Ai this time, and he promised them that it would be given to them. In fact, he said that he has handed. It was past tense. It's already done. I have given you the people of Ai because of your obedience. I wrote this down. Uh, this is the Lord's promise, this one right here. And it is God's faithful love and protection is repeated while promises are given in response to obedience. So, they obeyed, and God, in response, allowed them to have the victory that they sought. If there is a, a moment of practical application there, it is this. Uh, your plans, your desires, your will, you having it all figured out, uh, this is not the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is not for you to take it upon yourself in your own strength, in your own might, to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, and it's going to be impossible to accomplish those things if you are in the midst of grave disobedience against the Lord. That's what we learn from this. When you get those things right, when you confess to the Lord, when you um, involve, frankly, the Lord in your plans, when you wake up every day saying, not, Lord, bless what I do, but Lord, allow me to do what's your blessing. It's a completely different mindset. And so we see in this in these first couple verses of this chapter, that they are allowed to go ahead and God even gives them specific instructions on what to do. And so the, the next sort of section that I've got outlined here is the ingenious ambush. And that's verses 3 through 29. And what happens is that Joshua mounts this incredible military strategy. And when I first started reading this, the first like two or three times, this is where I just was like, okay, I'm really not sure where we're going to go with this. I think I even asked, uh, I, asked uh, I have a, a group chat with Andy and a couple other guys, and I was like, I'm not sure where I'm going to go with this. And, of course, Andy came back with, uh, with a poetic summary of Joshua 8 written by an AI chatbot, so that was awesome. Um, uh, I thought about just reading that, but, you know, anyway, I didn't. Um, um, but I thought, wait, what, what is... What is going on here? So let me just set up what happens, and then uh, we'll go from there. Basically, there is this ambush that is put together. You've got basically two groups of soldiers. You've got one group of soldiers who goes to the west side of the city, and they lay in wait with an ambush. And what Israel is going to do is send this other group of soldiers, and they're going to send them to the front of the city as though they were attacking the city, thinking, and it turns out to be they thought correctly, thinking that the men of Ai would pursue them again because they fled the first time. So they'll think, well, they're look at this, they're trying this again. They're going to flee the second time too. And so that's exactly what they did. They took advantage 
of that weakness and the men of Ai go rushing out, chasing after Joshua's forces and they are left severely inhabited um, or inhibited, I should say. And then the second group of soldiers ambushes the city, burns it down. The, once all that starts to happen and they see the smoke rising and all of that, the first group of soldiers knows that it's going down in Ai. So they turn up the heat and turn around and start chasing the forces of Ai back to their city and they slay all of them and then the city is destroyed and that's what we find. 12,000 people dead, the king is hung, they've conquered the city of Ai, it's all up in flames and it has the Lord's blessing and it not only has the Lord's blessing but it's what he said to do. Pretty crazy stuff, pretty crazy stuff. That covers most of the chapter that we did not read, verse three through also verse 29. Now, at the end of this whole thing, what they did, and this was based on, it was basically a, a reenactment, if you will, of the event of Deuteronomy 27, 12 through 13. Basically, you had uh, Israel on two sides. They had Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and one group of the people was to read, or they did in Deuteronomy, one, one group was to, was to read the um, blessings of the law, and the others was to read the curses. This was sort of like a reenactment. Joshua did this. They stood on either side. Joshua copied the stone tablets, the, the law of God, and he recited them. And so they have this, what I call the renewed commitment in verses 30 to 35. So the Lord gives them this city after making things right, they go through, they mount the military strategy, and then afterward, they recommit. This is one of Israel's great recommitments to the things of God, which they were instructed to do after they got through the promised land. So now they're finally in the land that God had promised them so many years before. They, are, they have taken Jericho, they have taken Ai, and they are now renewing their commitment to the Lord. Well, all well and good, except for that awkward part about how they kill 12,000 people, hang the king, burn the city, men, women, children, and all of that. And so what do we make of that? What do, I mean, surely I'm not the only one who that gives me a little bit of pause. And I think, you know, there are serious consequences for sin. We know that. But like, was it sin just for those men, women, and children to just be in AI? I mean, as far as we know, right, just looking at the text, all they did was exist there and live there. Well, there's a lot more to it. And that's what I like to go through. Now, the thread that sort of ties all of this together is supernatural war. Supernatural war. Um, the New Testament says it like this. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. There are multiple pictures given throughout the Old Testament and the New of the spiritual battle that rages around us every single day. And this is, by the way, not the stuff of Fox News. This is not the stuff of conspiracy theories or whatever new thing that, 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 that comes out. Uh, if you don't think that real spiritual wickedness, demonic forces have control over some things that are going on in the world today, you're living under a rock. That's the only thing I know to tell you. And it's, it'd be so easy. In fact, it's what Satan wants us to do. It'd be so easy to turn against those fellow imagers of God, people who are made in the image of God, like you and me. It'd be so easy just to turn against them and to think that they are the problem. Friends, they are merely puppets 
unfortunately, in this situation, intelligent supernatural evil controls a lot of what's going on. But I believe the New Testament, when it says that after Jesus died, he went down to the, and this is just one of those weird, you know, things in the Bible. I love weird and strange stuff in the Bible. But the Bible says that Jesus descended into hell and preached against the spirits that were in prison, declaring that he would overcome the grave. And he proved it by rising again the third day. Now, that same event accomplished the redemption of our sin if we are willing to receive that gift. But it also accomplished the uh, death and destruction and defeat of spiritual wickedness. Nevertheless, sin, we still sin. It's still in our lives. It's still around. Spiritual wickedness, spiritual forces, it's still alive. It's still around. And this is what the Bible deals with in, uh, we say something like this, already, but not yet, okay? We're already saved, but we're not yet glorified. We already have experienced resurrection, but we've not yet experienced final resurrection. And all throughout the Bible, you have this idea of it's already accomplished, but it's not yet completed. It's one of those beautiful paradoxes in all of Scripture. And I think the lesson that I'd like to, to get from this, the practical lesson, really is that oftentimes, like, I, I, would, I don't think if I were God, I would have ordered this event to go just like it did. Um, and doesn't that happen sometimes in our daily lives, where things just don't exactly go how we would have planned them to. Yet, I wouldn't have done it that way, Lord. Uh, I would have done it a different way, right? We experience that all throughout our lives. And God does not often do things in the way that we might plan or expect or anticipate. But by the end of this, what I want to have proclaimed to you is that he's still good. He's still God. And he's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of those things that we wonder about even the tough things that we might read in Scripture. So let's dive right into this. The first thing I want to uh, share with you, and I'm, I'm going to ease in here because this is one that you've heard before, is that everything that happens is either allowed or ordained by God. Every single thing that happens is either allowed or ordained by God. And that's tough, isn't it? It's tough when we look around at that person that got cancer before they were supposed to. It's tough when we look at that person who got in that uh, car accident and they weren't supposed to. You know, for some reason, we never get mad at God when the decisions that he makes turn out to be favorable for us. May I suggest to you that everything that he does in your life is favorable to you. Although you may not see it in the moment. And this is the promise of Romans 8, 29, 30, 31, those verses, where it says that all things work together for good. Now, it's a lot easier to say than to experience. I get that. But friend, in the moment, you must remember that you are not God. He is God. And he either allows, if you believe that he is the creator, and I do, if you believe that he created this world, then your problems in the context and in the scope of his creation are very small. Now, it's not that they're not a big deal. The Lord knows they're a big deal to you. And if it's a big deal to you, it's a big deal to him. That's fine. What I'm talking about is the fact that he is the creator. He ordered everything. He's got something bigger and better and greater waiting, even though you are not able to see it in the moment. My favorite illustration in the Bible of this is the book of Esther, right? We've been through the book of Esther. God's not mentioned anywhere. 
And yet he was working the entire time through people. The Bible says that, that the, I forget the exact language, I believe that, that it comes from Proverbs, but what it basically says is that the king's heart, the king's heart is basically con- controlled by God. God orders, this is in the Psalms, God orders the steps of those that love him. Um, this, God has good intentions for his people. And if you can read the story of Israel and come away with anything but that, well, I don't know how. Even though his people will ultimately fail him over and over again, the fact is, he's always looking out. He's always watching. He's always guiding things in the way it should go. And so there is not a tornado that touches down. There is not a car that crashes. There is not an illness that comes about. There is not a a, a person who dies. There is not a raise that you get. There is not a business that you start. There is not any single thing that you do in your life that was not either allowed by God to happen or ordained directly by him. It's all under his sovereignty. Psalm 47, one through four, says, oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord most high is terrible. That simply means that he's great, he's mighty. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says it this way, who is the image of the invisible God, this is talking about Christ, who is God, of course, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him, and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I love that line, by him all things consist. What, what this basically means is that literally everything, every moment you experience, every atom in the universe, it's all held together by God. It's all held together by him. The only reason it all keeps running, the only reason that scientists can do science and uh, repeat experiments, and tomorrow they're going to be the same results as they were yesterday, and this is an orderly universe, and it's, we're not just you know, bouncing around and atoms clashing against one another in some evolutionary cycle. It's all because the Lord holds it together. And my friend, if he does that, if he's holding it together, if his eye is on the sparrow, if he can count the lilies, if he can number the few hairs on your head... I promise, he understands, he knows, he ordained, he allowed that situation. Pretty wild stuff. And all through the Bible, the examples reign. I mean, Adam, David, Solomon, Noah, uh, Peter. I think about how Peter denied Jesus three times, even though he said he wouldn't. Man, Peter, he, I, we can identify with him a little bit, I think. But Peter was so zealous for the Lord, so zealous that he said, yeah, I'm, Lord, I'm never gonna deny you. I'm headed to the grave with you, the whole thing. And the Lord's like, before the cock crows two times, you're gonna deny me. And he does. And yet, God still uses him, right? He becomes one of the greatest preachers to ever walk the face of the earth. He, he is a martyr. He ultimately is crucified, History tells us upside down crucifixion. That sounds crazy for the cause of Christ. And the practical examples we've already been through, sickness, death, whatever it is that you've been through, it's either allowed or ordained by God. And so this is, this is simply why God is a rewarder of faith in his promises and obedience to his command. It's faith and obedience. That's the dance of the Christian life. 
faith, obedience, faith, obedience. It's your daily walk. It's your daily rhythm. It matters not that you mess up. You will mess up. The question is, are you loyal to the Lord? Are you putting your faith in him on a daily basis? Are you seeking to obey him on a daily basis? Okay, number two. There is often more to the story that God is telling. Often more to the story that God is telling. First is the promise of the conquests. Have you guys ever wondered, it seems so weird, right? Have you ever wondered why there was so much fighting over land in the Old Testament? It's just land. Who cares, right? Is it really worth killing 12,000 people who were made in the image of God? Is it worth hanging them, hanging the king on a public display for all to see? Over land? Have you ever thought about that? Surely there's more. Surely there's more going on here. Who remembers Genesis chapter 11? The Tower of Babel, right? The nations are scattered. Most people, if you ask them, would understand that event to be where the languages of the earth were derived from. At least most Christians would answer with that. Yeah, 100%. It's absolutely true. However, there's another verse in Scripture that we virtually never talk about that references back to that event of Babel. And it's Deuteronomy 32, 7 to 9. It says this, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. The years of many generations. That's back when people lived a lot longer than they do now, right? Remember um, all the people in the Table of Nations, Genesis 10 and all of that. um, They lived for a long time. Uh, Some people lived almost a 1,000 years. Ask thy father and he will show thee, thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High, that's God, by the way, divided the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. I'm going to read a quote, a quick quote here from Dr. Michael Heiser. He says this, Deuteronomy 32, 8 to 9 describes how Yahweh's dispersal of the nations at Babel resulted in his disinheriting those nations as his people. Yahweh, in effect, decided that the people of the world's nations were no longer going to be in relationship to him. He would begin anew. He would enter into the covenant relationship with a new people that did not yet exist, Israel. Remember, he had to supernaturally create Israel out of a barren couple. You remember that? What happened is at this point, this was already, you know, it's basically like page three of the Bible, and humanity has already been driven to wickedness, to spiritual wickedness against him. Three times. Adam and Eve, the events of Genesis 6, which brought in the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. And at that point, God says, you know what? Let's just start all over again. And what he does there, the Tower of Babel is not just, it's not just Uh, spreading out the languages and and creating confusion. It's not just that. It's literally disinheriting the nations of the world. Why do you think they served other gods? They were under the dominion of spiritual authorities that are not the God of the Bible. And and this is spoken of here. And and this is why, you know, it talks about people being the, the, the children of Satan. Why it talks about uh, all this, uh, the actual spiritual war, the, the words that the Apostle Paul uses are principalities and powers and thrones and, and dominions. These are spiritual terms for not just leaders on earth, but spiritual wickedness. We, everybody knows this, but principalities, powers. 
These are spiritual learns, but notice how they use geographical language, dominions, powers, thrones. And so the promise here is that Israel's portion, well, or I should say God's portion, which is Israel, were promised this land. They were promised, it was part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so that's sort of step one here, right? Is there is a promise to the conquest. This is why they fight over land. It's not just land. It's spiritual territory that belongs to God. And he needs to get it back. And this is the start of that process. Now the finishing of that process comes later in Pentecost. And that's another message for another day. But it's super cool, right? But this is where it all starts. Secondly, the target of the conquests. Joshua 11, 21 to 23, zooming forward a little bit. And I'm not sure who's going to have Joshua 11, but um, uh, here's just a little tip for you. <laughs> and at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains. Now, let me just actually zoom out just a minute. This chapter or um, this uh, verse is part of a set of verses in a passage where he is summarizing basically the events of Joshua 1 through 11. He's summarizing the conquest. He's summarizing his military campaign through the land of Canaan. And this is what he says. And at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, and Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashdod there remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. And the land rested from war. So this is what I'm calling the target of the conquests. The target of the conquest. Notice, why does Joshua take this special mention to talk about this group of people called the Anakim? What's with that? Who are these people? Why, why, why do we just need to know that it was the Anakim that were cut off from all these mountains and everything? And this is where we get into more to the story that God is telling. Again, if you just think of this as, well, God's just sending in his troops to take over this land and we're killing all of these people. That's the wrong way to look at these sorts of missions. They were targeted for very specific purposes. Supernatural war. Supernatural warfare. The Anakims were descendants. If you ever heard these words, probably all in succession. You've read them in the Bible multiple times. The Anakim, the Rephaim, and the Nephilim. Can anybody tell me what those were? Giants. Giant clans. Well, I did a whole message on this a while ago. You can go look up on YouTube. Uh, but um, giants, in the, in, the, in the context of the Old Testament, were a big deal. They were a chaos symbol. They were uh, the enemies of Israel all throughout. It starts in Genesis 6, sons of God, daughters of men. They have the Nephilim, okay? The Nephilim are giants, men of renown. This is where the whole thing started that sent them into the flood. Later on, of course, the last time that we have mentions of this is when we have David taking out Goliath. Anybody know where Goliath was, was from? He, he was from Gath, right? Philistine Gath, it, it was in this area, okay? And so... It is, a, it is part of the spiritual campaign against the giant clans that Israel were fighting that had this taken out. And there's a command. You read it in different times. Jericho is involved. AI is involved in a couple of others. In Hebrew, the word is harem. Harem. It means devoted to destruction. And uh, if you look back, in, I think it was in chapter 7. might have been chapter 6. Talking about um, 
what God commanded them not to do with Israel. It was not to take of anything that had been devoted to destruction. What's the point? Is there collateral damage in war, whether we're talking about war in the Old Testament or, or, or war in modern day Afghanistan or Ukraine or wherever it is? There's always collateral damage. But is the target the men, women, and children? No. It's the target is the people who are creating the chaos, creating the wickedness. That's the case here. The only time that these commands were given to actually devote something to destruction, it was when what they were killing were giants. Remember, why didn't they go into the land of Canaan the first time and then have to go wandering in the wilderness for 40 years? What did they say? They said the Nephilim are in there, the giants, and we have no hope of getting them, of, go, of coming after them. Okay, so that is part of the context of what's going on. And then the judgment of the conquests. These were people that were very, very wicked by anyone's standards, okay? Genesis 15, 13 through 16, this is God talking to Abram. He says, I said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. Of course, this is talking about Egypt the Israelites being in Egypt. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. In other words, you'll die in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What's the point here? The point here is that God waited patiently and even sent his people into bondage in Egypt while he waited for the sin of the Amorites, which is these same people, okay? These are lots of people groups mixing together and all of this. It's, it's the people of the land of Canaan is not yet complete. These were people who practiced demonic worship, who practiced child sacrifice, who would burn children on the altars of false gods like Molech and Chemosh. This was evil that was happening. Is God allowed to judge evil? Sure, sure. In fact, and I need to move on because our time is almost finished. But it's important to know. We'll go through these next ones quick. Number one, that, that, or number three, I should say, that God commands, his commands actually flow from his character. They're not arbitrary. God isn't making it up. That's what I want you to get. Uh, God's not making it up from day to day and having to, to, to go back on his word and change his mind and all of this. God knows exactly what's going on. His commands flow from his character. They are not arbitrary. Lots I want to say there, but I'll just kind of leave it at this. When God, who is the source of goodness, declares that an act is to be carried out, then we have a moral duty to carry out the command, as God said. Now, is God going to command us to go slaughter Canaanites in the modern day? I'm being a bit facetious. Of course, the answer is no. I've already told you this was a very specific circumstance. It was against the command to destroy everyone and leave no one alive was was pitted against a very specific group of people who had a history of not only child sacrifice and everything, but literally have been defiant against God with those giant clans and everything for, for hundreds of years at this point. That was a very specific campaign, but Joshua was morally obliged to carry that out because God said to do it. So whenever God does command something, his command flows from his character. They're not arbitrary. I want to say this. Thankfully, we are not God. That's number four. Thankfully, we are not God. And next time you're tempted to think that you wish you were God, I invite you to go back and watch Bruce and Evan Almighty, if you haven't already. Now, 
I probably shouldn't be endorsing them from behind a pulpit. I'll probably get in trouble for that later. Um, the movies do make one important point. They make one important point. At least the first one does. Um, when you start to try to become God in your own life, you quickly realize how daunting of a task and impossible of a task that is. So thankfully, we are not God. God is able to see the beginning from the end. He has what philosophers and theologians call morally sufficient reasoning for the things he does. Only God can see the end from the beginning. Only God can see that the hardship you're currently experiencing is going to result in tremendous blessing 10 years down the road. Maybe only 10 months down the road. Maybe only 10 days down the road. Maybe only 10 hours down the road. If I can give you something practical to lean on with that, I would say become a noticer of what God is doing, right? Step back. Instead of wishing you were God, be thankful you were not. And instead, just notice and look around. I'm afraid that so many of us have become used to so many of our different modern comforts, and we so quickly begin to give ourselves the credit for all the things that we've accomplished. And when we do that, what we fail to do is see how God has used the hardships of our past to produce the fruit and the blessings in our future. And you've got to become a noticer to see those things. The, the fifth and, and final part, and I'm done here, is that if he can't judge evil, if God is not, again, because you get people saying that, well, based on events like this that happened in scripture, God is an evil God. God is an evil God. Here is the reality. If God cannot judge evil, then God is not good. This is number five, gentlemen. And therefore, not God. Could a being who is all evil instead of all good be God. No, we don't have time to get into why, but no, no. So if God is not allowed to judge evil when it's happening, you see, because people want to have it both ways, right? On the one hand, they're mad because there's so much evil and so much wickedness and so much darkness that we can all recognize in the world. They're mad that God hasn't done something about it. Why hasn't God made it to where everybody has clean drinking water? Why hasn't God made it to where, you know, it, it just everything has worked out. There's no homeless people. There, there's no children without a family. Why hasn't God just solved all these problems in the world? But when God rains judgment down on people and solves the problem, people say, oh, that's evil. I wouldn't have done it that way. What are they doing? They're making themselves God again. So if he can't judge evil, then he is not God because he's not good. So keep that in mind. Like, if you're gonna say something to the effect of you can't play God or, or you know, you shouldn't play God in someone's life, that is the tacit admission that it is possible to play God. Meaning that God has the right to give life, has the right to take life away, has the life to do what, or the right to do whatever he would choose to do in your life. I would just say that as a Christian, you must remember that he is for you, that he's not against you, that it's all part of his plan, that everything he does, he either allows or ordains. And I'll just close with this. God, in his mercy, is the just judge. He punished Jesus on your behalf, on my behalf, because 
God is not separate. He's, he's not, there's not a good God and then a just God and then a merciful God and then a holy God. These are all attributes of the same God. He doesn't have to trade one for the other. He is always God. He is always good. And God's perfect love, his perfect mercy, his perfect justice, and his perfect wrath all meet in one place. You know the place I'm talking about, the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus. He took it for you and for me. He took our punishment. He took our wrath. We can lay that all under the cross now. And that, my friends, is the gospel. So, pastor, you can come. If you don't know the God of the Bible, tonight would be a fantastic time, good a time as any that I can think to meet him. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's stand to our feet tonight. And thankful for that message, a high view of God. There's nothing in your life that surprises God. He has a purpose and a plan. Steve, what a message.